Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Paul King, author of Iconic Pittsburgh. Paul King, author of Iconic Pittsburgh, the city's 30 most memorable people, places, and things. You grew up in Pittsburgh? I certainly did. What were the years you were- Mount Washington. What were the years you were a kid there? I uh, grew up in the uh, early 60s and lived here through 1984 when I moved to New York City. And you said Mount Washington? Yes, in well, fact, we lived right on Grandview Avenue. So we had a nice view of uh, the point and Three Rivers Stadium and everything that was being built and going on over on the north side and in the Golden Triangle over all those years. What was the neighborhood like you grew up in? You know, the neighborhood was, was great. It's so much different than it is now. Uh, it was very, tight-knit community. Everybody knew everybody else. You know, there, uh, we all went to school together, or if we didn't go to school together, we at least played together. And, you know, it was a much different time than it is now, uh, when you, especially when you go up on Mount Washington and see all the, the empty spaces, particularly in the Duquesne Heights side, which is where I grew up. But uh, it was, to me, it was a great place to grow up. You said in, in your introduction you used to ride your bicycles all over the city? Yes. Uh, my friend and I used to ride down everywhere, usually South Hills. I don't think we ever went over on the north side of town. You know, it's, people joke about that, uh, this rivers being the dividing line in the city, where if you lived south of those rivers, you went south, but you never went north. And... The reverse was true for people who lived on the north side and uh, all the places to the north of the Allegheny. So we used to take our bikes down to South Park all the time. And, you know, this was back when there weren't helmets and there <laughs> weren't bike paths. So, you know, riding on some of the roads like Brownsville Road and uh, Baptist Road going into uh, some of the places in, in Whitehall and Bethel Park and into South Park, it was, uh, we never thought about it, but it was kind of uh, scary to do that. <laughs> you had to be able to handle all the hills? Yes, but, you know, we were used to it. We walked everywhere back then. You know, if we weren't riding our bike, I used to uh, walk from Grandview Avenue across the uh, Liberty Bridge and into Oakland on Saturdays just to use the main library or to go out to see... Uh, something going on in Oakland, and we, we didn't think anything of it. What was going on at the city, in the city at the time? Well, back then, uh, you know, things were starting to, to change. You know, when I was born, we had just gotten through, I guess, uh, all of the terribleness of the, the air pollution, uh, the water was starting to change a little bit. And, you know, we had the, uh, you'd already had the, the first renaissance. And I 
lived there through the, the second Pittsburgh Renaissance. And so we saw a city in flux. You were, the steel mills were starting to close down and you were having oh, an influx of different kinds of industries. The University of Pittsburgh was growing. Duquesne was starting to grow. And we were just, oh, we were seeing a, a whole lot of change. You know, during my childhood, Forbes Field closed. And we opened up Three Rivers Stadium. And then we went from Three Rivers to PNC Park and, and Heinz Field. So it was, a, it was a time when you could tell that the city was never going to be that uh, manufacturing hub that it was really uh, created for. Were any of your neighbors or your friends affected by the closings of the steel mills as that happened? You know, a lot of them were, uh, because that's, those were the, the industries. You know, people, a lot of people worked in the steel mills. My brother worked at the uh, Irvin Works for a number of years. And, you know, I used to joke, I went to, uh, to college and graduated, and the first newspaper I worked at, I used to, uh, or my brother, used to collect more on unemployment when the steel workers went on strike that I was bringing home with my college degree. So, you know, it was, a, uh, it was a big blow to a lot of people when the steel industry kind of shut down in Pittsburgh. Oh, where do you live now? Now I live in northern Vermont. Uh, I left in 1984 and I went to work for a different trade magazine, started in New York City, and then moved to Chicago back in 2012. And then in 2016, when I decided to do freelance writing full time, my wife and I moved up to northern Vermont to be close to my one son and my two grandsons. So, you know, it's been interesting. But, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction of the book, Pittsburgh's always been home. And, you know, what, what took me away from the city was really looking for uh, meaningful work in the publishing industry. And had I, had I been able to find something or land something in Pittsburgh that would sustain me, I would never would have left the city. And there are times when we talk about moving back now that, uh, you know, I'm semi-retired. It's uh, particularly with working on the uh, iconic Pittsburgh, you know, that, that got me thinking about, do I want to come back? And where would I live if I came back? I still have uh, a lot of family and friends here. And so... It's easy for me to come back because I always have a place to stay. I have people to see. And uh, it's, like I said, it's always been home. How often no matter do you come where I've been. How often do you come back to Pittsburgh? You know, it used to be when I was working full time, I'd get back maybe once or twice a year. Uh, but when I started doing the research for Iconic Pittsburgh, then I found myself wanting to come back. And as a freelance writer, I could do that. You know, I just pack up the the laptop and all my notes for various clients I was writing for. And I would just come back to Pittsburgh and spend a couple weeks, do research, visit with people, uh, spend some time in the library and, and looking up things, uh, spend a lot of time at the Heinz History Center. And 
I could just continue to do my regular writing from my, usually my niece's house in Bellevue. It says in your biography, you're, you're a food service writer. Yes, uh, it's an interesting transition because when I, when I started, after I graduated from Duquesne, uh, I worked for newspapers in the Mon Valley and I spent three years at the uh, Washington Observer. And then in 84, I had the chance uh, to move to New York and it was really, I moved at the time for my uh, wife, who was from New York City originally, for her to take a job as a teacher. And we talked about it, and I said, you know, if you want this job, we can go, because if I can't find a job in my field, in the publishing capital of the world, then I guess I'm not very good. <laughs> so we packed up, and three weeks after we moved, I was offered a position at this food service trade magazine. It's called Food Management. And I didn't know anything about the food service industry. When, when I wrote for the Observer Reporter, I did one food service story, and it was about uh, a central kitchen that they had built the Ringgold School District down in Monongahela. And I got a tour of it, and this was my introduction to school food service because, you know, I went to a small parish school and we had no real food service you know you they'd offer us like pizza fridays or uh, hamburger tuesdays <laughs> but it wasn't a real established program so i had no idea what to expect in the food service industry it was just going to be this way station until in my mind a real newspaper or magazine offered me a job and the strangest thing happened I fell in love with the industry. I fell in love with the, the people who worked in there. I was surprised by how innovative it was. And I was writing about, I wasn't writing about restaurants. I was writing about school districts and college cafeterias and hospital food service and uh, corporate cafeterias. It was really nothing like, you know, going to your, your local Outback or Applebee's. You know, it was a completely different world. But I was amazed at how innovative these people were. You know, they're working with uh, budgets of, you know, pennies compared to what uh, a top-notch restaurateur would be working with and how much they were charging for their, their entrees and everything. School food service in particular, you know, you're talking about how to feed kids food they'll eat and food that's good for them for, you know, maybe $2.30 a day. And what they were able to do was just fascinating. And so I stayed with it. I... I worked in for various trade magazines for almost 40 years until I decided that you know I would step back and wanted to do just writing. You know, I'd become an editor and I was I loved the writing but I hated the management. I hated mm -hmm. dealing with the uh, the personnel issues and the budget issues. And so here I could do exactly what I had always wanted to do. But I still write a lot for food service clients, you know, universities and uh, some various trade magazines that I once competed with. Now, you know, I'm doing freelance writing for them. So it's, uh, it was just a fascinating time. Well, we haven't talked about your book yet. Now, how did this book come right. about? Well, you know, when I became a, a freelance writer, uh, I started thinking about all the possibilities. I started doing some corporate histories and 
doing those, there were a couple of food service companies that I was writing about. And with all the research that I started to do, I realized, okay, you know, this is a big-time project. I was used to writing, you know, two, 3,000-word features, uh, but nothing on the scale of a book. And when I started doing my first corporate history, I realized that I had the bandwidth to do this. And, you know, when I was younger, I thought I would be a, a novelist. And I always set my first novel in Pittsburgh. And so when I thought about what I would want to do, because the, the corporate histories I was writing, I was under a contract. You know, I write these things and I would turn over the manuscript to the, the company and then they would get it published. And my name might appear on it, it might not. But once I was done with the manuscript, it was done. They paid me a fee and that was it. I wanted something that was going to be mine. And so I was talking with some friends one day, and we started talking about Pittsburgh in the old days and, you know, some of the people we had met over the years and, uh, you know, how people like Art Rooney, uh, you know, just such an icon in the city. And that, that word stuck in my head, and I just started thinking, what if I put together a list of those people and places that P Pittsburghers think of as, you know, quintessential uh, Pittsburgh people or places and things that people from outside the city would want to learn about. So that if you were coming to visit or you're coming to, to live here, you would have some sort of a book that would tell you, you know, what are the, the places and people that you should know about in living in the city. So... I went on Facebook and I started asking my friends and people, you know, belong to a couple of the uh, Facebook pages for Pittsburgh. And so I just said, you know, who and what do you think are the icons in the city? And, you know, I got so many different uh, responses that uh, I said, you know, we can really do this. And I put together a list of uh, 25 and then I decided I needed to have some verification. I needed somebody to tell me I was on the right track. So I reached out to the Heinz History Center, and they put me in touch with Ann Mataraz. And she took a look at the list, and she said I was on the right track. She actually gave me uh, a couple of other names. And so my list of 25 went to more than 30. And I said, okay, we got to figure out what to do. So I ended up cutting the list at, at 30. But Anne helped me realize that, uh, you know, as much as I knew about the city, you know, there were still things that I hadn't thought about. And so together we put together the, the list that appears in the book. And, you know, I appreciate her help so much that uh, uh, I interviewed her for a number of the, the icons. And so, you know, her comments about some of these people and places are in the book as well. And so then it was, what am I going to do? Am I going to self-publish? And I had looked around, and there was a company called Arcadia Publishing, and they did a lot of picture books. You know, you, in uh, for various cities, if you go into, uh, like, Barnes & Noble, you'll find 
books about neighborhoods all over the city. And they're basically just uh, books of old photographs that people have pulled together. And that was a nice, something nice for people who could look and say, you know, oh, my grandfather was here at this, uh, this place, or, you know, I know these people from this, this picnic or this opening of whatever. But I wanted something that was going to be more of a, uh, uh, a history. And so I reached out and I said, what, you know, do you ever do things like that? And they put me in touch with their uh, subsidiary, the History Press, and assigned me an editor. And we talked over the list. And the only drawback that I found was they like people who are living in the cities that they're writing about. And so that was the hardest sell was to convince them that, you know, I was the right person to write this and I was willing to do whatever it took spend as much time in the city as possible to market the book once it was published. And so I put together a couple of chapters. They liked what they saw. And so they gave me a contract. And then everything was just, just fell into place from there. When you were making up the list, how hard was it when you got down to the 29th and 30th thing and figure out what was the 31st thing that didn't make it into the book? You know, I'm trying to remember, and I don't, I don't think it was all that that hard, it was, uh, I was comfortable with the 25 number, and it was when we started adding that, that I started to second guess, well, what, you know, was 30 the right number, or would it be, should we go to 35? Because you want, you know, when you're putting together a book like this, you want to have some sort of a, uh, a recognizable number, you know, 25, 50, uh, and, but I couldn't, I couldn't go from, uh, when I hit 30, I said, you have to stay at that, but I didn't want to go back to 25 because what, we, what I got from Ann was just so important. You know, what Ann shared with me were uh, people like Dr. Tom Starzl and Mario Lemieux. Who and when I I should backtrack a little bit and say when I went to put together the list, so one of the things that I didn't want to do was put in athletes or uh, actors, singers, because you open up a whole big can of worms when you do that because there are so many famous people who have come from Pittsburgh that you know once you start adding people like Gene Kelly and. Michael Keaton and, you know, Perry Como, people like that, you know, where do you stop? That's a whole and so I said, we're not going to do, we're not going to do any athletes. We're not going to do any of the, uh, uh, the typical celebrity people that uh, some people were suggesting. Because I got a lot of uh, suggestions for people like Michael Keaton, uh, Porky Chedwick, and Bob Prince, and obviously uh, Roberto and Josh Gibson. And I said, you know, that's how I would control the list was by leaving those people off. So when Ann mentioned Mario, you know, I thought, well, no, that's, that's another athlete. But because I was away from the city now, uh, I didn't realize how much Mario has done for the city beyond keeping the Penguins here in the city, uh, what he has been uh, able to accomplish philanthropically was uh, was amazing to me. And so we put him on the list, not because he was a great athlete, 
but because, you know, he has been someone who has helped to keep the city alive and, and vibrant and really do a lot for the people of the Pittsburgh area. Well, just to refresh people's memories, you say in your book that the Penguins were bankrupt when he stepped in? Pretty much. You know, it was, uh, I think it was touch and go for a while whether the Penguins were going to be able to stay in the city. You know, and they'll be here for quite some time to come based on what he was able to negotiate. Uh, you know, putting in, I think, they're guaranteed to be here in the city uh, through 2037. And so, uh, you know, people are going to be seeing the pens for a long time, thanks to what Mario was able to accomplish. Now, uh, I guess with a book like this, we could just open it to any page and ask you about it, and you could just go off on each chapter. But I want to ask about one name, and that's Mary Shenley. And you say Shenley is one of the most well-known names in Pittsburgh, not necessarily a household name outside of Pittsburgh, but you say without a doubt she was the city's most unusual benefactor. What, what made her an unusual benefactor? Well, when you think about the, uh, the time period, you know, you're talking about the, uh, the 19th century when all of the, uh, the rich people, the uh, business tycoons and the philanthropists were all men. And so here is a woman who really became a benefactress because of things that her grandfather actually did. You know, when uh, Forbes was, uh, you know, able to buy up all this land and, you know, her mother inherited all of this. So, you know, Mary Shenley stood to come into a, a large fortune. Uh, and it would have been uh, something that happened to her, you know, when she turned 21, except for the fact that uh, before she ever got there, uh, she had been sent away to boarding school, met a very dashing British army officer, and went and eloped. You say a scandalous and, marriage. Yes. Well, he was some 20 years her senior. Uh, you know, it was scandalous because of that. It was scandalous because it was an elopement. Uh, it was also uh, something that, uh, you know, had not been approved by, by her father. And so, you know, it was just, it really, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, it shut down uh, McLeod School in Staten Island, you know, because of the scandal. So, you know, it was, uh, it was, it troubled her father so much that he actually had a mild stroke over it. And when he recovered, he decided that his daughter was not going to inherit the, uh, the millions that she was entitled to. And so he actually went to the Pennsylvania legislature and had them pass a law that made him uh, the controller of her estate. And so, you know, there was a time when she had no chance of getting uh, any of her fortune. You know, fortunately, uh, her father relented. He actually, they had, uh, uh, Captain Shenley and Mary had moved to England 
and actually spent some time down in uh, British colonies in South America uh, where he actually was uh, supposed to uh, monitor the slave trade. So, you know, it was an interesting time for them uh, as a couple because their lives were being threatened because he was supposed to be uh, controlling the, the, uh, the main source of economy for these colonists, uh, the uh, colonies, the slave trade down there. And so, really, uh, she was not sure what, you know, what her life was going to bring, but uh, they ended up returning to England, and her father went and visited her and forgave her and accepted Captain Shenley. And I think he always hoped that she would move back to the city. And so he bought her uh, or had uh, built a house for them in England. And he replicated that house on his own property in Pittsburgh, hoping that they would come back and live there. But it never really happened. Uh, She would visit from time to time, but uh, mainly because of Captain Shenley, who thought that Pittsburgh was... uh, I guess the term you'd use today would be like a a hick town or hick country. Uh, You know, he didn't think living in the United States was all that glamorous. You know, he wanted to stay in England. But Mary did inherit all of her uh, wealth when her father died. And because she wasn't living in Pittsburgh, it was what was she going to do with this land? But I think there was a part of her that uh, always loved the city. And so when she started giving away her land, because, you know, her wealth was not so much in money as it was in real estate. She owned a lot of property around the city. And so she started giving that to offering it to the city and offering it to uh, private people. You know, uh, Andrew Carnegie got some of her land uh, to build the Carnegie Institute. Uh, and, of course, Shenley Park was, uh, you know, her biggest contribution to the city. And she made two stipulations when she offered the city that land. And I think this kind of shows how much she loved the city because she said that uh, they had to keep it as a park in perpetuity. They, they could buy additional land from her, and they did 100 acres. Uh, they spent $125 million for, uh, no, I'm sorry, $125,000 to buy another 100 acres. And as we all know, you know, it has remained a park to that day. You know, we have the Fort Pitt Blockhouse because that was on land that she owned, and she donated it to the Daughters of the American Revolution. And so it stands today in Point State Park. And the Cathedral of Learning sits on land that she donated to the University of Pittsburgh. And so there is a lot in the city that uh, we have to be thankful for, that she, her father was able to forgive her, and she was able to uh, give away her fortune for the good of the city. 
Now you mentioned in your answer there a couple of things that are also mentioned in your book. One is uh, Point State Park and the other is the Cathedral of Learning. Um, yes. First of all, Point State Park, how often do you go there? Uh, I try to get down there whenever I come into the city. Uh, it's just, for me, it's a beautiful place to walk. When, when I was a kid and they had opened Three River Stadium, we used to walk to the Duquesne Incline and we would walk or ride down the incline, walk across the Fort Pitt Bridge through Point State Park and the Fort Duquesne Bridge to get to Pirate Games. And so, you know, as a kid, spent a lot of time down in the park. And I just love downtown anyway. So even if I weren't going to a game, you always found reason to go down to the park, see the uh, museum, walk through the blockhouse. Uh, I just, I always loved history. And so whenever I was down there, I had to go into the blockhouse, you know, just to, to look around, even if it was just for 10 minutes. Kind of feel that connection to the revolutionary times. You think about the history of the place when you stand there at the point and look at the rivers? Yes, very much so. You know, it's uh, because it is why Pittsburgh exists. You know, those rivers made the city what it was. You know, it was a, a, a real uh, point of defense for during the French and Indian War and during the early stages of the Revolutionary War. Uh, you know, you had Fort Duquesne there, and then you had Fort Pitt. And just the, the fact that those rivers uh, and that, that area provided uh, the jumping off point for a lot of the goods that people created in the city. You know, it, uh, not too far from where uh, the Monongahela side of the point is, was the first place where the uh, uh, purveyors would package their goods and load them on uh, uh, boats and send them down the Ohio or down the, the Monongahela. So, you know, that is, that is so much, uh, that is what the city is to me. You know, that confluence of the three rivers because everything that we have today grew up from that little triangle of land. Now you also mentioned the inclines and for someone who has never been to Pittsburgh, explain the inclines. Inclines are, uh, you know, we take them for granted in Pittsburgh. You know, when I rode down the incline, I never thought about uh, uh, where they really originated from. And it's one of the things that fascinated me when I started doing the research was a, you know, where they came from, the fact that German immigrants living up on what was then called Coal Hill, uh, suggesting a way to get uh, down to the city because, you know, back in the 18th and 19th century, there wasn't uh, an established road system. You know, if you look at uh, old photographs of the, the hills around Mount Washington and the south side slopes. And even on the north side, there are just uh, uh, steps riddled throughout the city. That's how people got around. You know, so you had these uh, immigrants when the, the steel industry began, they would walk down those steps and they would go to the, uh, the steel mills along the Monongahela River and they'd work a 12 hour day and then they would walk back home. And 
they needed to find an easier way up. But there was, uh, you know, you didn't have cars yet. You didn't really have an established road system. So the easiest way to get up and down was going to be uh, a straight shot. And, you know, Germans were familiar with uh, the funiculars, as they're called over in Europe. You know, I think the first one was built in Bavaria in like the 16th century. So they knew that this was technology that could work. And, you know, it became the, the major way for people to get around. So it was, and practical people, public, uh, it was practical public transportation and not a tourist thing. Right. No, they were, Pittsburgh was not a, a, a tourist town. I don't think it really became a tourist town until uh, the 1960s and 70s. But uh, for them, it was just a mode of transportation. And, you know, people of, of my age who grew up with the, the Duquesne and the Monongahela Incline, and you might, if you're old enough, remember the Castle Shannon Inclines, don't realize how many there were at one time. You know, before the 19, uh, the turn of the 20th century, you know, there were 17 inclines all over the city. You know, some of them took people, some of them just took uh, uh, product. You know, you had the uh, incline, for instance, that went from what is now the Strip District up to the Hill District. And that was really uh, people carting up produce to the supermarkets up on the Hill District. So, you know, it was not as a lot of people who visit the city see it today as a place they can go and say, oh, wow, I rode up this nice little incline and I got to see this, you know, panoramic view of the city. You know, even today, you know, for a lot of people who live on Mount Washington, it is just a way to get to work. Who owns them now? Monongahela Incline is uh, owned by the Port Authority, and the Duquesne Incline has uh, private ownership. And that is, uh, it is uh, technically, I believe, uh, connected with the Port Authority, but uh, back in the 1960s, when that incline was struggling economically, uh, people banded together on Mount Washington and they put together uh, an organization to save the incline. And that organization continues to run the Duquesne Incline today. And, you know, there's the, the dichotomy or the, uh, the difference between the two inclines. You go over to the Monongahela Incline and you just, you go up the incline and you've got the, uh, the overlooks for the city. But if you go on the Duquesne Incline, you've got uh, a little gift shop and you've got the, the uh, platform outside with the, uh, the Veterans Memorial. And, you know, people have gotten married on that, that little platform. And so it's, uh, one seems more, the Monongahela is more utilitarian and the, uh, the Duquesne is more of the, uh, the touristy kind of incline. We could probably talk for a long time about each of your 30 chapters, but since we're limited yes. in time, I want to jump around a little bit and cover a couple more sure. of them. You mentioned a little earlier about Forbes Field, and you say near the outfield wall were a flagpole and two light towers. All three were in play, and the Pirates would store the pregame batting cage along the wall near the 457-foot sign. The, the, the towers were part of the outfield. They were not 
outside yes. the field of play. Did, did you used to go to games at Forbes Field? You know, uh, unfortunately, I never got to go to Forbes Field. My father was not a baseball fan, and so I didn't get that opportunity because by the time the uh, uh, by the time I was old enough to go by myself, uh, I, I was just too involved with with school. But as soon as the uh, the Three River Stadium opened, you know, we were down there every chance we got. Well, I want to ask you about something you mentioned in the book about as you travel the country, you run into what you call expats, yes. like ex expats. Um, what? How do you find them, and and what do they have in common? When what keeps them mentally connected to Pittsburgh? When I run into people who are from the city, I mean, first of all, uh, it's it's very strange sometimes how you run into somebody. You might it might be a conversation, it might be. Uh, something you overhear at dinner. You're in uh, Dallas and you hear somebody a couple tables over talking about, uh, you know, the North Hills or Shenley Park. And, you know, I find myself looking over and saying, oh, did you grow up in the city? And then you start a conversation. I remember uh, back in 1991, I was down in Atlanta for a food service conference. And I was staying at the, uh, uh, the Omni Hotel in the uh, CNN Center, or the Turner Center. And because we were at that particular hotel, we could use the uh, athletic, the exercise facilities at the Turner Center. So one a Saturday afternoon, playoffs are going on. Pittsburgh's playing Atlanta. And I'm on an exercise bike, and I'm watching the game, and one of the pirates commits an error. And there is a gentleman five bikes down from me. And I hear him go, oh, crap. And I looked over and I said, are you rooting for the pirates? And he said, heck, yeah. I grew up there. And we spent the next half hour on our bikes talking about, you know, he grew up uh, on the, in the North Hills. And we just talked about where we went to school and, you know, things that we used to do growing up. And, you know, you run into those kinds of situations everywhere. But the one thing that I find is that when I run into Pittsburghers living somewhere else, they always stay connected to the city. Like that, that gentleman, he wor he's working for CNN. He's not rooting for the Braves. He's rooting for the Pirates. And, you know, he, but he had lived in Atlanta for about 15 years. So that's what I find when I run into Pittsburghers who live anywhere in the country is they always talk fondly about the city. They wish they could go back. You know, I wish my job were there instead of here. Uh, or they continue to follow the, the Pirates or the Steelers or the Penguins, no matter where they are. It's, there's a bond for people who live, who've lived in Pittsburgh that never seems to go away. And that's been true in my own life. If someone is watching this and they've never been to Pittsburgh and they can go there for a few days, what are the things that are the must-see things? Well, I would say, uh, obviously, you want to go down to Point State Park. You want to ride the inclines, uh, at least one of them. But more than that, I would say you want to travel through the city. I think Pittsburgh is a... a 
a series of neighborhoods. You know, and I, I think that it's important to experience places like the South Side, Mount Washington, the Strip District, Lawrenceville. Uh, those places are, those are what the city is all about these days. You know, that's where the, the, the longtime Pittsburghers live, and uh, that's where you really get a flavor of what Pittsburgh is like. You know, you've got a lot of uh, old timers. You have some uh, people moving in because of the service industries that are locating here. But, you know, those people don't have the, the love of the city yet that long timers do. And so I think you, if you really want to experience, it's like, to me, it's like you go to France. You can tour Paris, but if you really want to get an, uh, a French experience, you go out into the countryside and you really talk with the, uh, the French people who live out there. Same thing in Pittsburgh. I think you go into the neighborhoods and you really, you know, you walk into a, a local deli or uh, you experience what the Pittsburghers who live there day after day, uh, what they live through. And that's where you get the true flavor of the city. You know, Primanti sandwich is a great iconic sandwich, but you know, it's it's kind of like, it's become like a tourist thing, and so I wouldn't say necessarily you need to experience something like that, but you definitely want to experience the neighborhoods. Well, the Pramani sandwich is one of the chapters in your book, <clears throat> and I want to ask you about that. Are there are there distinctive Pittsburgh foods that people should try when they're there? I remember going to Pittsburgh one time, and I wanted to be healthy, so I ordered a salad, and I got this salad with french fries and melted cheese on the top is that yes something you have to watch out for the pittsburgh salad uh <clears throat> you know it it's one of those uh strange things about pittsburgh uh you know i think you could do an entire book on some of the foods that uh pittsburghers grew up with you know aside from the primani sandwich you've got things like chipped ham from isley's uh, and the white house ice cream which is a a, a cherry uh, vanilla ice cream with cherries in it uh, that you can only find at Isley's. You know, anything else would be called, you know, like a cherry vanilla ice cream. But uh, in Isley's, it's called White House. Uh, you've got things like uh, the, the Pittsburgh steak, uh, which is a very rare steak, something that, that comes about from, uh, uh, as I understand it, steel workers who used to take uh, things like steak, and you could put it on some of the metal that they were working nearby, and you would be able to char your steak, and it would still be uh, very red on the inside. And so that's what, when you hear something like Pittsburgh rare steak, that's what it means, something that is charred on the outside and uh, almost alive on the inside still. Uh, the Turkey Devonshire, uh, something that was created in Pittsburgh. Uh, believe it or not, French fried zucchini is uh, something else that was created in the city. And then, of course, you've got all the ethnic foods like pierogies and halushki uh, that I think you really need to experience in the city to understand. It's one of those things, again, like going to neighborhoods, that you experience the uh, the foods that native Pittsburghers love. And a lot of it is going to be Eastern European ethnic foods. 
Now, another one of your chapters is uh, on the people is August Wilson. And you say yes. Wilson is one of the best playwrights this nation has ever seen. Who is he? I, I would stand by that. Uh, and, you know, I would say there were a couple of people, uh, icons in the city that I wrestled with. And those two would be uh, August Wilson and Andy Warhol because they grew up in the city, but they didn't make their living in the city. You know, August moved to uh, Minnesota and he ended up uh, in Seattle. Excuse me, Andy, when he graduated, he moved to New York City because that's where he knew that he was going to be able to make his living. But I included them because they both have a love for the city that I think shone through in their either their love of family or uh, the works they produced. You know, August Wilson did not live most of his adult life here, but you've got his Pittsburgh cycle of plays, nine plays all set in the Hill District, and each one showing a different decade of the city. I mean, that's something that uh, you really have to experience if you want to know what uh, what Pittsburgh and the black experience in Pittsburgh is all about. You want to read or see uh, the August Wilson uh, Pittsburgh series of plays. And so, you know, those people, uh, they had that love of the city that uh, transcended what they, what they did. And that's why they're in the book. Now, one of the names you mentioned earlier that also might not be a household name, Thomas Startzel. Yes. Why did he make it in uh, the book? This one, uh, this is one of uh, Ann Mataraz's contributions. And again, we, we wrestled with the idea of either Jonas Salk or uh, Tom Starzl. And for, for Starzl, I think, well, I think that a lot of the icons, uh, the people who are iconic in the book, are there because of the innovations that they brought to the city. I mean, when we talked about the, some of the... Uh, uh, the philanthropists of the, the 19th century. You know, I've got Andrew Carnegie, but I don't have uh, the Mellons or the Fricks because to me, someone like Andrew Carnegie, uh, who, you know, wasn't born here, but made most of his fortune here. Uh, George Westinghouse, uh, another person who, not born in the city, but he came to the city. The city drew him in because of its uh, willingness to uh, be innovative. Those people uh, really brought glory to the city because of the, their innovativeness. And Tom Starzl is another one of those people. You know, he came here, did a lot of his work, not just with the uh, transplanting organs, but a lot of the, uh, the medical study into anti-rejection drugs and really making transplantation uh, something that is uh, so very common these days. You know, we would not be able to do some of the things 
that uh, doctors are able to do to save people's lives if it weren't for the work that Tom Starzl did. And, you know, the, the University of Pittsburgh recognized that. You've got the, uh, the Starzl Transplantation Institute, uh, Tom Starzl Way. And so, you know, the city, the university has recognized his contribution to the city. And so, you know, being iconic doesn't mean that uh, you grow up someplace. It's what you brought to the place that, that you grew up or the place that you live. And so for people like uh, Carnegie and Hines and Starzl and Westinghouse, what they did, uh, their innovativeness in terms of uh, the products they produced or the, the research that they did, uh, that's what makes them iconic. And that's what I think people from outside the city need to know, is that Pittsburgh generated a lot of innovation in terms of uh, technology over the years, from uh, Carnegie's uh, use of the Bessemer product for steelmaking to the, uh, the air brake that George Westinghouse created to the ability to transplant organs that Tom Starzl brought here. Uh, people from outside the city need to know that this, this city has given the country and the world so much. Plus the first radio station. Yes, and first public TV station, first publicly or publicly funded uh, TV station with WQED. I want to ask you about one more into uh, the people, places, and things. Under things, you have something you're sitting not too far from there at the PCN Pittsburgh Bureau, and that's the Kaufman's clock. How does yes. a clock make it into your book of top 30 things? I think the uh, outside of the people, uh, the clock was the first thing that everybody mentioned. You know, if there is uh, a one thing that Pittsburghers consider to be uh, Pittsburgh, it would be the Kaufman's clock because everybody knew it. Uh, it was a, a, a central meeting place. You know, if you're going downtown, you use the Kaufman clock, Kaufman's clock as uh, a focal point. You either met somebody there or you told them when you got to the Kaufman's clock, you were going to make a left or a right to get to wherever you were going. Uh, it's another place that, uh, you know, People have gotten married underneath that clock. It's just something that is uh, so Pittsburgh that, uh, you know, you couldn't have this book without that. There are certain things that I could have left off uh, and made an argument for leaving off. Uh, I don't think Pittsburghers would have forgiven me if I had not included the Kaufman's clock. Was the Kaufman's department store still there when you were growing up? Yes, yes. You know, when I, when I was here, we had the big three. Horns, Gimbals, and Kaufman's, and used to go downtown with my mother, and at one time or another, we went into all three of those stores uh, looking for various things. And I can still remember the uh, wooden escalators that ran through uh, Kaufman's store. Uh, look at those things. Then I was a little uh, trepidatious about getting on them, but now I think about them, and in my mind, uh, it's nostalgia that I feel when I think about them. When you were talking about Mary Shenley, you said she donated the land that the Cathedral of Learning is on. Uh, what is that and why does it make it into your book? 
Well, the Cathedral of Learning for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because as a, uh, as a visible icon, because if you're coming from the West, or coming, rather coming from the East, you're traveling West, the first, one of the first things you see as you encounter Pittsburgh is the top of the Cathedral of Learning. That's, you'll see that before any other building downtown. And it's the second largest uh, educational structure or university structure in the world. And so, you know, that gives it some bragging rights. But inside the cathedral is something that to me is more valuable than the cathedral itself. And those are the nationality rooms. You know, if you want to know about Pittsburgh and Pittsburghers who made this city, you know, you take a tour of the nationality rooms and you see all of the various uh, immigrant countries that have made this city because those nationality rooms were built and they are maintained by ethnic groups here in the city. So you walk through there and you get a sense of how very diverse this city actually is and, you know, what a diverse portfolio of people made, made it exist in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. You know, it's, it went from the, uh, the English and some French and some of the Irish to the, uh, the Germans and all the Eastern European, the, the, the Poles and the, the Slovaks coming in. You know, they really helped build this city. You know, they were the ones who worked in the steel mills and the coal mines and, you know, the glass factories. Those are the, the people who built this city. And so you, you know, if you want an education into what Pittsburgh's all about, you go through those nationality rooms. And there's, uh, we talked about some people who are not household names, but you do have someone who is a household name in here, and that's Fred Rogers. Oh, yes. Uh, Fred is another one who uh, we could not have done this book without. And Fred is one of the, uh, one of only two people in the, the people icons that I actually met. You know, the other one being Art Rooney Sr. And I actually got to interview Fred Rogers. And before I did that, you know, you saw Fred on the, uh, the TV. Now he was, uh, I was a little bit too old for Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, but my sister sat and watched it all the time. And so, you know, as you get a little older and you start to be a little cynical, you think, you know, can anybody be that, that sweet, that kind? <laughs> and when I was working for the Observer reporter, uh, Fred Rogers was scheduled to do the commencement speech at Washington and Jefferson College. And it occurred to me this was in 1983, and it occurred to me that that group of graduates might be the first uh, group of people who actually grew up watching Fred Rogers. You know, they were going to be uh, four, five, six years old when Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood came on the air. And so I wanted to ask him what it was like talking to people that, you know, he had talked to over the airwaves for 20-some uh, years. 
And so I contacted him and went into Oakland to interview him, walked into his office, which would look like yours or my den, and had an hour-long chat with someone who is absolutely the same in real life as he was on this TV screen. You know, I have never met uh, a kinder, gentler soul. And, you know, he just brought so much to the, uh, not just the children, but to the parents of this city and the country that, you know, if there's any person who would be considered uh, iconic to the city, it'd be Fred Rogers. I hate to do this, but we're about out of time. So after you've tackled uh, your first book, you think there's going to be a uh, iconic Pittsburgh part two? Not exactly a part. Well, it won't be iconic Pittsburgh, but when I put together the list, uh, I mentioned earlier that a lot of people suggested uh, figures like uh, Porky Chedwick, Dick Sienka, the dancing cop from the 1960s and 70s. And so when I finished Iconic Pittsburgh, I uh, talked with my editor at the History Press, and we started to come up with another list. The book is tentatively titled Pittsburgh's Colorful Characters, okay. and it will look at uh, people who will uh, who were colorful in one way or another. I'm going to have to uh, stop everyone, you there. Unfortunately, oh. we are out of time. I, I want to okay. thank you for your time. We've been speaking with Paul King. He is the author of this book, Iconic Pittsburgh, the city's 30 most memorable people, places, and things. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.